CEO steps down and private equity makes a big sale. Motley Fool Money starts now. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Deidre Willard. I'm joined in studio by Motley Fool analyst Jason Moser. Hi, Jason. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. How are you? Doing good. Well, I feel like one of the time-honored PR techniques is you kind of sneak out news on a Sunday night. We got one of those last night with the news that Illumina's CEO, Francis D'Souza, he stepped down. Illumina, they're a biotech company. They're focused on genetic testing. D'Souza, he's kind of been through it the last uh, few months, really. He's been the subject of this activist attack from Carl Icahn, which he outlasted over the Grail acquisition. Not the first time we've seen a CEO go through something like that and step down. Was this the case of him just like outlasting that and then choosing his own moment to exit? It, I mean, it's possible. I mean, this this has been quite the soap opera, though. Um, and and I mean, ultimately, you see what's gone on here from from this the inception of this acquisition, kind of buying back this company that they spun off. Does seem like there's a level of hubris that that came with Mr. D'Souza that could have backfired on him. I mean, when you when you go through a deal like this. And, and regulators voice concerns, and you go ahead through with the deal. You close it, everything. You kind of go against regulators' wishes, right? They they didn't. Right. They just sort of thumb their nose at, at regulatory concerns. There, I just don't feel. I don't feel like that's a good. I don't feel like that that's good for business, right? It, it it feels like you know you're not necessarily in the position to be making those calls. And I mean, this is a big deal. It was an eight billion dollar acquisition. Uh, Illumina, a thirty billion dollar market cap. I mean, it was it was relatively large in the context of the business itself. And, and so, uh, I, I, maybe maybe this was a matter of him choosing the right time to get out. But it sure does seem like uh, the activism was was not playing in his favor, right? I mean, this again. I go back to that word hubris. It feels like there was a level of hubris involved with this decision that probably backfired on him. Could it have swayed things had he just taken a little bit more of a conciliatory tone or, or, or exercised some patience? Maybe. I don't know. But it does feel like the, the regulatory concerns were justified in, in this potentially putting Illumina in, in a position where competitors really wouldn't have an opportunity to, to compete fairly with them. Yeah, and it was interesting to see uh, immediately after the news came out, Icon went to Twitter. He, you know, he talked about the. <laughs> You know, he was sort of declaring victory. Then you had D'Souza. He was on LinkedIn talking about how he still believes the Grail deal will go through. So, definitely had that soap opera element to it. So let's talk about the Grail deal. So this was what really had Icon so upset. You know, it's this cancer detection test. It's the former subsidiary, as he mentioned. The FTC said it was going to stifle competition. Illumina appealed. That's that was still going on. D'Souza in that LinkedIn post, he was very much saying, you know, he still feels like this is good for the company, even though, of course, he no longer has a say in that. What happens next? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, it does feel like there are some tones here. Uh, save, save the you know the the hubris. I guess uh, I would say it does feel like there's some tones here of Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, and then this has been mm. going on for a while, and, and yeah. it's really tough to try to figure out exactly what the end game is or what's going to happen. But it does seem like the signs are pointing toward this not happening, right? I don't I don't know that. D'Souza stepping down makes any difference. I'm sure there's probably someone on the regulatory side that's maybe. Saying I told you so, <laughs> I don't know, but I don't know that this is a matter of having a different CEO or different leadership installed. I mean, really, at the end of the day, this boils back. And you look at you look at the the criticisms that Mr. Icom uh, lobbed up in regard to this deal. I mean, it was generally you know, the feeling that they're overpaying, um, which they very well may have. I mean, valuation is somewhat subjective. Um, 
but but ultimately this this boils down to shareholders right i mean this is something where they it was felt that this is not a shareholder friendly deal this is not something that really plays into uh shareholders favor and and so regardless the ceo i don't know that that really changes the dynamic of this deal and and ultimately it does go to sort of the risks of of growth via acquisition right i mean illumina is it's a company that's kind of it's run into a little bit a little a little bit of headwinds there in regard to growth, and so acquisition is one way you kind of get past that. Uh, in this case, it doesn't look like this acquisition is going to work, and so then you got to go back to the drawing table and feel like, okay, well, what exactly are we going to do to spur that growth? Um, I don't I don't know that uh, I, I don't know that this deal is going to happen, and I don't think uh, change in leadership makes a difference. Interesting. You know, I want to sort of dive into that a little bit more of the idea of what happens when a deal like this, it's as you said, it's been going on for so long. Both companies highly engaged in it. Now if they have to if they go off in their different directions, you said, you know, maybe does Illumina look for something else or do they try to grow without acquisition? And what does it mean for Grail? Yeah, well, I think that really depends on on who fills Mr. DeSouza's role, right? I mean, new leadership will come in with new strategy. And so it is a little bit of a waiting name to, to see exactly who uh, does fill that role. And, and that will dictate, I think, a lot of how uh, Illumina is, is approaching these next uh, few years. I mean, certainly if they do look for additional acquisitions, they're going to have to be very thoughtful in regard to regulatory concerns there, because it does feel like, I mean, not just in regard to Illumina, but it does feel like regulators are giving a lot of these deals a lot more scrutiny than than they have been over the last several years. Um, so, so maybe that is a little bit of a, a, a sort of a changing changing of the narrative there uh, going forward, not just for Illumina, but for for companies uh, all over. Yeah, especially uh, certainly we've seen that in in biotech as well. With uh, I believe it was Amgen and Horizon. Well, let's talk a little bit about Carl Icahn. He's such a fascinating figure to me. Uh, you know, there was that HBO documentary about him recently, that Hindenburg short report that claimed, among other things, that Icahn is kind of pumping up his dividend. Uh, he owns around 84% of the company. He doesn't take his dividend in cash, but you know, it's a, it's got an attractive dividend yield. Since that report, the stock has been down dramatically. You know, he's he's a fighter. Is he fighting too many things at once? It's possible. I mean, I would say probably so. But I, I you know, I think he likes that. I think that he's doing what he really loves to do. He has a long uh, activist history for sure, and and always seems to be in the headlines. There's no doubt this stuff gets personal sometimes, and I think that's really the biggest risk beyond just spreading yourself too thin, which we see often uh, with leadership. Uh, they they kind of. Try to focus on doing too many things, and they don't do anything really terribly well. And I, I wouldn't necessarily put Icon in, in that position yet, but it, it does it does seem like some of this stuff gets a little bit personal for him. Uh, you, you go back through the years, look at some of the battles that he and Bill Ackman have waged. Um, I mean, it's, it's difficult for that stuff not to get personal at some level because they just start lobbying attacks against each other and, and investing. At the end of the day, really is just one big disagreement, right? I mean, <laughs> you got a buyer and a seller, and they, both parties think they're right. But but I think that speaks to the greater risk in investing, not just for someone like you know Bill Ackman or Carl Icahn, but for, but for 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 us, right? I mean, emotions can be a real risk for investors, and, and it's it's important to be able to to find ways to keep those emotions in check because they can they can make you make decisions that necessarily uh, that don't necessarily take take the long term in, in into view. Yeah, yeah, and he's such you know he's he's very he's very uh, you know aggressive in his language too in the ways in the presentations that he makes and things like that. So it always seems like he's got an axe to grind. And probably a little bit of hubris there too. I mean, I think there are a lot of good lessons that kind of come from these. 
you know, we often talk about the way we invest versus like some of these things you see in the headlines, and you know, these folks are playing a different game, right? We're not playing the same game, and and so uh, it, it is. Maybe there there is an attitude and a level of hubris that is required for 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 you know what they're doing, but but regardless, it can all lead to potentially bad decision making, uh, or at least some short term focused decision making, which uh, oftentimes doesn't work out well. Yeah, it's true. Well, let's let's move on to some uh, M and A news. We always we kind of get those on Mondays too. We've got NASDAQ acquiring Adenza. So, Adenza, if you've never heard of it, uh, a lot of people haven't heard of it. Uh, <laughs> deal for $10.5 million. So, Adenza, it's actually a mix of two companies that were acquired by Toma Bravo, which is a private equity firm. It's Calypso and Axiom SL. Both of them are regulatory. One of them, uh, regulatory software, one for brokers, it seems, and one for sort of the more bankers' financial end. Tell us a little bit more about what this deal means. Yeah, you know, it's funny. We usually see this going the other way. The news is always that Toma Bravo is acquiring another one of our, our yeah. favorite software <laughs> firms. Right. I still remember the day they acquired LA May, and I was a little bit salty about that one. But um, yeah, this is this is just an interesting combination. I think you go back to uh, what was it, 2020? Bravo acquired Axiom SL. Uh, then in 2021, or it was around that same time they had acquired Calypso, but they ultimately they. they Merged Calypso and Axiom SL to become Adenza, and um, you know, on Adenza software firm that that helps manage trading and risk management and and post trade processing, along with uh, technology that helps streamline reporting to regulators. I think that's an important uh, dynamic to the business because when you start bring bringing regulatory reporting, regulatory framework into the mix, that can become a little bit more of a competitive advantage, uh, particularly in, in in the world of finance. Again, it, it does feel. Like while we normally see uh, Bravo making the acquisitions, it's it's always interesting to see this this news when they're actually um, selling something and realizing a, a bit of a return on their investment. Well, and it's interesting too because Toma Bravo they pick up about around fifteen percent of Nasdaq in the deal because it's a cash and and stock deal. So that yeah. that is absolutely significant as well. But really thinking about where Nasdaq is is going, it seems to be in this in the middle of kind of a push. It's kind of becoming maybe a back end fintech provider. Is that necessary for Nasdaq if it wants to expand as a company to kind of bring in these other aspects of a business? I think it's going to help. I mean, we we talked earlier about just the risks of of, of acquiring growth, but in this case, I think this is a nice this is a complementary business. Um, when you when you look at Nasdaq. Before this deal, I mean, Nasdaq. It's a very transaction-centric business, and that comes with a level of expenses. And you can see that in in their market platforms, uh, which which make up the lion's share of the revenue before the transaction expenses. But once you back out those transaction expenses, it becomes more on par with their capital access side of the business. Uh, so this is going to be something that helps sort of diversify them away from that that exposure to just in the transaction side of the business. So ultimately, I think that's a good thing. Um, it's just a matter of of whether they can make this into Integration seamless. Uh, that always is, is a risk that comes with with um, with acquisitions. But uh, generally speaking, it, it seems like it's a complementary um, merger here for these two. Well, Toma Bravo, they're sort of fascinating because they've been really aggressive the last couple of years. They've, as you said, they've bought up some of the, some of the companies that we've liked, and they've also been doing this thing where they've been pairing up certain companies. So we see this with this one. They did something similar with Magnet Forensics and Grayshift. They're combining that into a new company, still private for now. But does this deal sort of shift that maybe Toma Bravo is now done with the acquiring and maybe starting to maybe 
start selling off companies? What what do you think might be happening here? It's possible, but just given the nature of Bravo's business, I mean, this is kind of what they do, right? I mean, as a P firm, they have better than 75 portfolio companies today. They manage around $130 billion in assets. Um, and because they specialize, right? They're so focused on this the software side of the world. I mean, they have a level of expertise that they've that they've really built throughout the years, and so they can see businesses that may make sense being together versus businesses perhaps that are separate. So you so you see them maybe making a couple of acquisitions, combining these businesses, and creating a little bit more of a a value proposition, a bit more of an attractive asset. I mean, if you look at just the numbers, I mean, Bravo bought Calypso for around $3.7 billion. They bought Axiom for around $2 billion. So, you look at this acquisition today, they're selling for around $10.5 billion. I mean, clearly, that's a nice return on that investment in a very short period of time. And I think you attribute that partly, at least, just to their expertise in this space. So, kind of the nature of their business model, right? You find attractive assets at attractive prices, you have a strategy in place, you buy them. And at some point, they want to realize the, 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 they want to realize that investment, right? Realize the gain on that investment one way or the other. And so, so uh, selling these for more than they bought them is kind of a nice, <laughs> a nice value proposition for Bravo as well. So you just uh, you rinse and repeat, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Who doesn't Who doesn't love doing things like that? So do you think that there's more software acquisitions in their future? It seems like it's still it's still a good time to be buying. You know, a lot of companies they can't get a lot of venture capital. They can't really go to the IPO market right now. We're still in that weird space. So is this still is this still an active, fertile place for them to be hunting? I would imagine it is. I mean, I would imagine with the way I mean obviously I guess technically we've entered a new bull market. It doesn't really feel that way though, does no, it? I mean no, it's kinda maybe we have to wait and see if this really lasts. But but I mean I, I think that there are still plenty of valuations out there that certainly look a lot more attractive than they did just a few years ago. Um, and, and, and in that regard, I would imagine they are absolutely taking a very close look at a number of businesses and it seems like they're gonna have a, a nice little cash infusion here very soon, uh, where they'll be looking to put some more of that money to work. So, uh, I, I would not be surprised to see them making an announcement of an acquisition or two here before the year's end. Makes sense. Thanks for your time today, Jason. Thank you. Even if you don't trade options, stock investors still feel their waves. Anjay Nagpal is the host of the podcast Brokers, Bagmen, and Moles about the birth of financial futures and a little-known FBI investigation at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Can you set up the era of, of the Merc before financial futures were, were even trading there? The Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Board of Trade, they started out as agricultural exchanges. And I mean, literally, where farmers in the 1800s would go to exchange crops, uh, you know, to buy and sell uh, crops and livestock and things like that. And then over time, uh, instead of actually trading the animals and the crops, they started trading futures uh, on on those things. And and that was the very short version of how these exchanges came to grow into the behemoth that they that they were. But there's a key figure that you cover in your show, uh, Leo Malamed, who has this idea to move the center of finance out of New York City. Something that was surprising to me was that on Wall Street they didn't want to they didn't want to do the the options for financial instruments like like stocks and mutual funds where you could bet on the future price of a security. Yeah, you know, Leo Malamed is really the the kind of single person. He's known as the Godfather of futures. 
Um, you know, we tell a great story in, in one of our episodes about him where, you know, he had this idea to to create futures, not just on agricultural products, but on financial ones. And that really, you know, spurred the massive growth of, of the exchanges in the 80s. And it was a study that he commissioned by Milton Friedman that actually convinced uh, his his fellow you know, exchange executives and, and other people to allow him to do that. So it's a really, really fascinating story. Yeah, one part of that story that I found uh, interesting is that he faced a lot of pushback in bringing these financial instruments to exchanges, which uh, would be, for me, at least unexpected for uh, Wall Street or Chicago. Yeah, you know what? Look, I think I think no matter what uh, industry you're in, you're in, there's uh, there's people that are a little bit afraid of innovation, right, and are a little bit afraid of evolution. But Leo is definitely a forward thinker, but he he got his point across. So let's. I want to get into some of the trading itself because uh, you talked to some people who knew Leo, and you would think a guy like this would be an excellent trader because he set up the game. And while you met many traders who might have had an edge in in somewhat savory and unsavory ways, Leo didn't necessarily have an edge trading securities on the game that he created. Yeah, yeah. Well, so like f- first and foremost, like we haven't obtained uh, you know all, all the information about trading is is anecdotal. We haven't we haven't obtained any trading records for him, but it's anecdotal from a lot of people, um, and so we can infer that 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 was the case that. He didn't make a lot of money trading at all. Um, in fact, quite the opposite of what we heard many times. But the other thing that 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 says about him is that he wasn't he he wasn't taking advantage of his position. He wasn't getting inside information from from DC um, as was accused uh, or rumored to be accused uh, around this time. You know, he he you know was a gambler, was a trader, uh, traded a lot apparently, and you know, like you said, creating the products didn't didn't help him. I mean, the market is. Uh, you know, as you know, as your listeners know, the market is hard and it doesn't favor anyone. But the thing that really seemed to work to his disadvantage was that he was very emotional about his trades. Yeah, that's uh, that's the story we heard from several of his former employees, and uh, I think Warren Buffett definitely is the kind of embodiment of the opposite side of that coin, um, who will tell you not to get emotional. So, if you're a trader or an investor, I think one thing you really have to think about is your edge. One trader you spoke with was Louis Bolsolino, and he said that his edge and his edge was temperament, the ability to stay calm when others were panicking. Um, do you think that was the most important edge for a lot of these traders? What were the edges that that you encountered in in reporting your show? Certainly, staying calm uh, while others are panicking is a, is very important. And I've, I've I've experienced that myself, and uh, you know many great traders will tell you that there are certain other aspects, um, certain other characteristics that make someone a great trader. Um, especially on those exchanges, though, it was really the set of skills that you needed to be a good trader on the floor of the exchanges is very different than the set of skills needed now. And we could talk about that in a second. But at the time, it was really kind of like. You know, almost like being a good poker player, you had to know how to read the room, right? So, you can kind of see. So, for example, if you're standing next to a, a big broker and he gets some like really big order, his eyes might go wide, or um, you know, he might get a little nervous, or he might start kind of looking at his biggest local traders that he's going to trade with. And so, you can kind of pick up on, oh, this guy's got something. Like, there's an order coming into the pit, like, and it looks like it's going to be a big one. Um, and you also can keep track of. Of things, so if there was a, a you know, let's say Goldman Sachs came in and bought a bunch of futures in the S and P's, 
well, you know, now that they're long and at some point they're going to probably unload those. So kind of keeping in mind, you know, uh, which customers have what positions uh, is also another one. But just really thinking fast, reacting fast, reading a room and being incredibly aware uh, of your surroundings is is what made Lewis uh, a great trader and what, made, what makes a lot of people uh, what made a lot of great people great traders uh, on the floor of the exchange. Yeah, it seems to be that ability to process a lot of uh, information that uh, it, at the same time, and, and that would be information that someone who's outside of the trading floor wouldn't necessarily have. And, and you can see how the game changes a little bit. You were a trader at the at the Merck from 2000 to 2005. How did you see that sort of trading change throughout your career? And then we can get to how how it continues to change today. Yeah, I mean, I was there during a time of great transition, um, and I traded options rather than futures. And you know, options are, are really complex. The pricing of options is is, is an art and a science uh, that involves you know uh, understanding calculus and and kind of multivariable like uh, calculus at that. So trading evolved a lot in during those years because, first of all, they were starting to go electronic, right? So at least. Trades were being entered as opposed to being written on, written by hand on a on a card. They were now being um, entered into little computers and kind of memorialized instantly. And that's a big part of what was wrong at the Merck and the Board of Trade for so long. It was like it was hard to create an audit trail for a trade because you just the rules said that you had to hand in these like trading cards of what you did every like at the end of the day or you know in that in that time period kept getting shorter. So then it was 15 minutes and then it was, you know, a few minutes and then it was, you know, pretty instantaneously, you know, which makes sense. Like you want to get those, if, if you're going to be able to regulate uh, a, a trading floor like that and open outcry trading, you got to have an audit trail. You can't just, you know, hand in a bunch of cards at the end of the day and expect nobody to, uh, you know, to take advantage. So what exactly was the FBI looking for on, on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange? So what they claimed was that they were trying to catch brokers uh, stealing from their their customers. That was the claim. Um, but what we reveal in our show, if you get to the last few episodes, is that they were actually there for more than that. When it comes to brokers stealing from their customers, you know, it's a really hard thing to prove um, because there's so much happening. You know at once on the trading floor. So trying to trace trades by sitting next to someone and having a, a tape recorder in your pocket is, is really hard, and it was hard to prove in court. So there's, there's a lot of dynamics that made it just such a, such a fascinating um, investigation. But the gist of it is, hey, these guys are taking orders, and they're in a variety of ways um, ripping off their customers and you know, giving giving some profits to people around the pit, and then splitting the difference with them and pocketing money that that uh, you know uh, is being stolen from customers. So, take us to the floor. What's it look like to go undercover as an FBI agent, trying to look for these uh, these bad actors fixing trades? It wasn't until I actually sat down and talked to the FBI that you know I really developed a lot of admiration for how hard their job was. They didn't always design the investigation. They didn't prosecute it. You know, their job was just to go down there and fit in, um, and that was probably the hardest part of their job is to fit in because, you know, Chicago's episode number one of our show is called the biggest small town in the world, and so a lot of the people that were at the board, uh, board of trade and the mercantile exchange, they kind of knew each other or they knew of you know 
uh, they had some relatives in common, or you know, they had some commonality. So these four FBI agents had to go undercover and kind of pretend like they were, you know, like they belonged. And that in and of itself was hard. Then they had to learn futures trading. That's hard. You know, and then they had to gain the trust of a broke of a crooked broker who wanted to use them as a bagman to park money that they would later, you know, that they would rip off from the customer and 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 later on split. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Deidre Woolard. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.